hello and welcome to the JLA Cast, a podcast in which we revisit Grant Morrison's legendary run on JLA, arguably the greatest superhero comic ever written, one issue at a time. My name's John and I'm the writer and creator of Afterlife Inc. And I'm PJ and I am the writer of the graphic novel adaptation of Steve Jackson's The Trolltooth Wars. And PJ, um, happy anniversary. Happy 50th birthday, but in fortnightly terms. We have... We've whew, we far surpassed the actual length of the series we are yeah. reviewing. <laughs> yeah, we have. <laughs> which is quite impressive, I have to say. <laughs> well, in terms of, of like episodes compared to issues, but in time scale, because that was monthly... So I think we're a, are we are we ahead of that or I can't do maths. No, it's probably it's probably best to not think about it to be honest. <laughs> uh, and 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 well, we, we had we had big plans for this episode uh, to celebrate our kind of half centenary, um, and we've just found out within like five minutes of going on air that we 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 kind of screwed up a bit, <laughs> but in an interesting way. Which yeah, is yeah. This is this is a weird one. So. We thought for the 50th episode, I've, I've had in my possession since the year 1999, um, the Wizard JLA special that they put out on the front page. It says, uh, Wizard is proud to pay tribute to the most successful superhero team in comics as JLA enters its third year as DC Comics number one title. So we thought we'd take a look at that. Unbeknownst <laughs> to me, there was an earlier Wizard JLA special. <laughs> So, a P- listener, like you can't. It's not PJ's fault because PJ's been like guiding me. He he sent me links. He sent me pictures to the eponymous JLA, the Wizard Magazine JLA special, which I I, I searched on eBay. I found a, a pre-owned, like lovingly preserved copy, which I had posted to my door, and I've read the whole thing and I've made extensive notes. And it turns out, it's a different. JLA Wizard Special <laughs> from a year earlier. I've got the 1997 one, which I had no idea existed. But the differences start right away because, I mean, I've still got the original bag. Mine came in as well, and, and annoyingly, what I don't have is uh, my one came with a preview sketchbook of the upcoming Our Man solo book. Oh I, wow! I no longer have that. That's and I'm annoyed by that because that was really interesting. Well, yeah, because I'm, I, you know, when we were realizing, or I was realizing my error, I was looking at, uh, you know, eBay listings of your copy, and I was like, oh yeah, it does come in a bag, and it does come with some Our Man kind of stuff in it. So, so yeah, I, I made an assumption, and um, I made an ass of myself. You know, I, I uh, <laughs> there we go. What can I say? But I think this could make for even more interesting. Um, audio entertainment for you lovely listeners because it means that we'll actually be looking at two different versions of a JLA wizard special magazine at two different eras of the team and so we can compare and contrast almost have a look at where DC Comics was two years apart in a way like where they are at the beginning of JLA and where they are as we're coming up to the end of JLA and I think uh, I think this could be fun well yeah because it's really interesting I mean like um, I mean, talk about a just talk about like a time capsule in itself. What a what a wonderful little artifact this is. Um, but secondly, like it, it's very weird that the the special I read uh, kind of came out. Uh, well, it came out in nineteen ninety seven. It came out simultaneously with 
it, around the same time of JLA issue five, I want to say, which of course is Woman of Tomorrow. Yeah. So it's this weird thing where, like, I can imagine that in terms of like the production of this issue and getting, you know, all the various interviews and stuff together. It was kind of like, I can imagine some was done before the series launched, some was done as it was launching. So it's very much like a snapshot from the very, very, very early days of the series where, you know, really like nobody knows where the series is going, you know, apart from obviously Morrison. And um, it's just a lot of hype around it. So is your, your is yours a bit more reflective because it's kind of pointing towards the mid or end of the series? Yeah, I don't know exactly when it came out. Uh, it's copyrighted 1998, but everything in it is sort of advertised for 1999. So I'm guessing it was sort of a, a end of the year, beginning of the year. Um, certainly in terms of storylines, I think it came out during the Ultramarines uh, Shaggy Man three-parter. It looks oh, like there's an interview, interview with Morrison in it, and it looks like he was in the middle of writing that when they talked to them. Um yeah, so they they were writing that Shaggy Man story as they were being interviewed for this this special. So then it would have come out, maybe even around the same time as the the Mark Miller one. But although that's not even mentioned, I don't think they were actually planning to have that fill in issue. But we'll get well, into that. Da- daft question, PJ. Right off the bat, are there photos of Morrison attached to the interview? There is a photo of Morrison. The interview opens with like a, a double page spread, most of which is is Morrison with their head in their hand, staring out at, at us, the reader. Are they looking uh, kind of uh, enigmatic or kind of uh, noble in any way? I would say enigmatic and slightly dangerous. We see because mine uh, also opens with an interview with Grant Morrison, but has uh, a rare uh, head. Grant Morrison. Oh, no, yeah. no, no. They they don't have hair in this one. Well, they've um, got eyebrows, but I must say, like, not a massive amount of hair. I think I think you know it was it was leading that way. But it is Morrison um, with the wildest kind of goofiest, craziest kind of smile shout on their face, and uh, their okay. hands are just full of JLA action figures. Ah, uh, no, yeah, different different photos. <laughs> because. Huh. So I want to talk a little bit about the cover to mine. Not, it's not a particularly interesting cover, if I'm being honest. It's a Porter cover. It's Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, and the Flash bursting through a wall. Um, but what is interesting about it is my issue included a competition where you could win the original cover art. Oh, interesting. So they they got they commissioned Porter to do this special piece for the cover of the the magazine, and you know it's a cool action shot. I think Porter's done better, um, but. Yeah, it, it's, it was then up for grabs for anyone who wanted to win it. Although I will say, and we'll we'll get to it when we get to the point in my magazine where it comes up, really difficult competition. <laughs> um, well, the, interestingly, there's a competition in mine as well. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold off on that because it's quite an interesting competition. I'll bring it up when we get to it. But this was an era when, well, obviously the, when Wizard existed as a magazine, but yeah. an era where they... They would always kind of commission original cover art, would they not? Like, you got some my, quite cool. There was like a, a Frank Quitely new X Men cover. Yeah, my my recollection of of Wizard is that they'd usually commission two original pieces every issue, or most issues. One would be the cover art, and then within the issue, they'd they had a feature about like a, a dream comics battle that they wanted to see that wouldn't happen. So like usually intercompany battles. Mm-hmm. Um, like I remember one that was green arrow versus I can't remember her name, but the archer character from the cross gen 
line of comics. And I vividly oh, remember someone drawing that and it looking really cool. And they do that sort of thing every issue. And uh, yeah, it's a commission for that as well. That was one of the fun things about Wizard, I think. I, I vividly remember one where, again, I didn't have a lot of Wizard. It was quite hard to get hold of. Yeah. Um, but I think I picked up a couple from a holiday, a family holiday to America. And I remember it was Wonder Man versus Wonder Woman. Oh, and okay. It was around the time when it was in the Busick Perez run, where yeah. Wonder Woman was made of, uh, or Wonder Man, sorry, was made of purple and red ionic energy, which I loved. And it was uh, George Perez. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was really cool. It was really cool. That's awesome. <laughs> and Wonder Woman draw both in JLA Avengers. Yes, indeed, indeed. Although, yeah, although not purple, if I see. No, I can't remember anyway. Um, but PJ, yeah. So, how do we want to approach this? Then, do we want to try and do like a kind of? We could do it section by section, and I'd imagined obviously we'd be dealing with the same content and the same sections, but we can kind of, yeah, deviate where where we see fit, perhaps. I think that makes sense. Um, yeah, so <laughs> it's it is bizarre. Mine mine obviously has the 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 title page, which is the cover of Strength in Numbers as well, actually. And then when you flip open to the first page, with with a JLA special, JLA in the middle, and then your big seven and the seven new guys, all present and correct. Well, mine is I think the cover to issue four. I want to say it's it's involved in the first trade. It's like um, it's the team rocketing towards us with an explosion behind us. Oh yes, yeah, I remember that one. Yeah, it's a really cool cover actually. But yeah, they seem to follow the same format uh, so far. Yeah, and then there's an editor. Do you have like an editorial then before the contents I do. page? Okay, what what do they talk about in yours in the editorial? Uh, it's uh, Douglas Goldstein. The specials editor talking Same about guy. how the JLA screwed up uh, his sixth grade education. Oh, okay. <laughs> what about um, yours? Uh, he's talking about remembering when Superman died. Ah. But not in comics. He talks about an episode of, uh, of, <laughs> of Super Friends where some aliens visit the Earth and they find it's a dead Earth and, and all the Super Friends have been killed. Oh, God. Yeah, I don't remember that episode. I haven't seen any Super Friends, to be honest. I never watched it, but uh, yeah. Uh, no, no, me neither. But, huh. Yeah, weird. I mean, um, I've yeah, so I, it just, it's just wild to me that, like, you know, I'm looking at... what I mean, what an era where you could actually have a magazine about comics. Yeah, and Wizard was, was a big deal, I think. Certainly in the 90s and early 2000s. Um, and I guess it's really the internet that killed it when you could just get comics news online. I think so. I didn't. It, it, yeah. It's it's kind of sad in a way. I, I can kind of see like why it didn't last. Like as wonderful as it is and as nice as it is to kind of like revisit, like it seems, it seems almost too good to be true because it's a, it's a, it's a publication about comics, which is very like deep in the paint. Like, it's not being written for, like, a layperson. Yeah. It's being written for, you know, quote-unquote comic fans. Like, it really, it's not trying to be accessible in any way. And I think, you know, you think about, like, where comics are now, and partially, I think, due to the success of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, you know, they're very much about kind of appealing to everyone nowadays. And I think having this incredibly niche <laughs> publication... I just can't see it really having an audience anymore. Yeah, same. And there's also, um, and I say this with love, 
it's a magazine of its time as well. It very much reflected what the comics industry was mm. at that point in time, for good or ill. And there are a few moments that I will mention as I go through my my one that sort of made me go, "Ooh, ooh, no, oh, that's d- not that's not good." Oh dear. Well, but also, it's this worldview that like comics were superheroes and superheroes were comics. Yeah, yeah, like, very much. It's not a comic. It's not a magazine about comics per se. It's a magazine about american superhero comics of the 90s and early 2000s yeah which obviously i have a great deal of nostalgia for but like this is also the era where the bubble burst you know like the the bottom fell out of the industry and and it almost died really so well i think we're only a a year or two out from marvel going bankrupt aren't we oh god yeah but it's so weird i mean there's little like throwaway comics in in here which are like um you know where it's very much like um you know the Avengers. Who? You know, yes, such, such a different era. Like you know, oh, <laughs> they talk about the X Men in a kind of like a semi-respectful way, but it's like, ah, oh, yeah, the Avengers. They're nobodies, really. You know. Well, yeah, at this point, I guess in terms of Marvel, the only characters who had major brand recognition outside of the comics were really Spider Man, the X Men, and to a degree, the Hulk. Which yeah. is a weird thing to think about. You know, we're we're what ten years before iron man the movie which yeah and we're like three years before three four years before spider-man the movie and i know spider-man obviously is very recognizable he had the cartoons and everything but like well the x-men cartoon was massive but yeah we're we're still three four years out from the x-men and spider-man and blade movies yeah we yeah i was gonna say we haven't even had blade yet what was that 99 late 99 so that yeah, still hasn't come one. out, and that's really what arguably has kickstarted the current wave of superhero films. Yeah, it's wild. I mean, like, yeah, who really like at this point, you you would be forgiven for thinking that like it was basically DC's game, you know, like you know, Marvel were kind of like the also rans at this point. It's very, it's very strange. Mm. Although I do have, uh, well, we'll get to it when we when we when we're going along, but I do have some thoughts on I, i've learned things from this this issue which have made me consider my history with the jla and and the avengers while we're at it um hmm. but pj what is the first actual section for you so i've got a, a a section that they've titled doing them justice and it's the top 10 things you absolutely need to know about the jla i have just learning answers which is uh kind of like 10 Q and A style things about what are the JLA basically. So they've they've gone with a very, it's like they had a template. I'm feeling for these two issues, <laughs> and then they just less than like two years apart from each other. It's wild. yeah. Well, that's re- that's what I think is going to be interesting here because there are going to be such so, like my first one is just what is the JLA? Oh, it's the Justice League of America. Blah blah blah. Yes. But then you get who's on the team. And, th- of course, in mine, it's uh, it's 14 members. So you've got the seven founders and then the new members. So Big Barda, Zauriel, Plastic Man, Huntress, etc. Well, you see, that's interesting. And I was going to come back to this. But mine is very much like the current roster is slated to have 12 members. Seven slots have already been filled. The remaining five members will be Aztec, Captain Marvel, Green Arrow, Plastic Man, and Zauriel. Oh, that's really interesting. <laughs> That's weird, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, because my next one is, wait, didn't I see other people on the team? And they go, well, yeah, we've had Aztec, Green Arrow, and Tomorrow Woman, but they all left or died. Also, Catwoman and the Atom have, have turned up, but they didn't join. 
Well, um, I've learned uh, from my little primer here is that this is the sixth JLA series. Oh, okay. Be, be that reboot or or renumbering or whatever over the years, and um, they basically and they they round it off by saying. Um, Forget the X Men. Forget Gen Thirteen. The Justice I, I, I have forgotten Gen Thirteen. Don't worry about <laughs> Nobody, that. How could you forget Gen Thirteen? <laughs> uh, the Justice League of America is the most powerful super team there is. Period. Wow. Mm. I think in, uh, this. I think was the first one that was called JLA, though, wasn't it? I think all the others were called Justice League of America. The, the yes. title of the series. Yeah. Yes, I think so. And yeah, I, I don't know if there's much more to say about this little section i i didn't like highlight anything of particular interest here there are a couple of things on mine one it talks about where their headquarters is the watchtower uh and then it's uh what kind of adventures do they have and then they talk about it's got to be huge so martian invasion hell on earth that sort of thing it then goes into jla year one though because it asks you know what's up with that jla year one book so in, it talks about how that recently ended which again says to me that this is december 98 january 99 uh, and talks about JLA Year One and the upcoming sequel book, Brave and the Bold, Green Lantern and the Flash. And then it gets into Young Justice as well. Uh, Interesting. Um, yeah, which had the working title JLA Junior when it was first being sort of worked on. And that was Peter David, is that right? Yeah, so it's a weird one. It starts with a one-shot, Young Justice The Secret, which is Robin Impulse and Superboy's first team up as a trio and introduced the character of Secret, who was major player in Young Justice. Mm-hmm. But then you get World Without Grown-Ups, which is really the forming of the Young Justice team. But I don't think that was written by Peter David. I want to say that was maybe Todd DeZargo. I've got it on my shelf. I'll have a check later on. But I think that was I don't think that was Peter David, and then the main Young Justice series launches with Peter David writing again. Well, can I just can I just say this now then? Because we're about to dive into the the Grant Morrison interviews plural, mm. and literally like, the thing I've underlined, highlighted, written in bold is Morrison is raving about an idea for a story they want to tell called World Without Parents. Oh, where everybody over the age of twenty disappears. And like robbing Superboy and all the young heroes have to save the day. Oh wow. I didn't uh, <laughs> I didn't think at all that Morrison had any involvement in World Without Grown Ups. But but I guess it would make sense that if you're putting out a JLA mini series or one shot, you should talk to the person who's writing the main JLA series. That's wow, okay. Cause cause I've and I think we're probably gonna revisit revisit it for the purposes of the series but i've read years ago world without grown-ups i think it was in the school library as well along with books one and two of this series uh but that was years and years years ago and i honestly didn't think it was grant morrison and i kind of generally believe it isn't grant morrison so their involvement in it or even just have the original concept is is wild i have no idea yeah, I've I've got the trade, as I say, which collects Young Justice the Secret and then the World Without Grown Ups issues, and I don't remember it mentioning Morrison anywhere, but that's really interesting if they did have a hand in it. So there you go. There you go. I've 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 brought something to the table, PJ. I do just want to rate this there's um it's fairly stereotypical, but the very last question in my what is the JLA thing is, what good is Aquaman on the moon? And they go, Oh look, I've gotta go now. So, you know, those jokes are still happening. Oh, okay, okay. 
There's a fair bit of Aquaman bashing in mine as well, if I'm honest. Even though they do have like a four-page feature on on Aquaman, which they do for each of the Magnificent Seven, yeah, which is very much which references Peter David a lot. Yes, uh, yeah, from the Time and Tide series. Yeah, well, because Peter David wrote the Time and Tide series and then wrote the main Aquaman series that came after, up to about issue fifty. Yeah, and they do they do kind of like a summary of david's run and they 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 must have like if they didn't interview david they definitely referenced like an earlier interview because like yeah they they go into great detail about aquaman's powers and how he's actually you know he's doing fine basically he doesn't he's not a joke yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah um but yeah so pj like my um my morrison interview is called mine all mine and it's morrison gurning with a handful of um action figures <laughs> mine is called killer instinct and as i say it's got the uh the edgy sort of um darker morrison photo where they're looking at you intimidatingly and it, it says the world's greatest superheroes may not survive their greatest enemy writer grant morrison uh, right <laughs> okay <laughs> one thing one thing i would say interestingly about this one is a small detail but the action figures that morrison is holding are all contemporary. Like, there's a modern-day Aquaman. I say modern-day. There's a 1997 Aquaman and a 1997 Kyle Rayner. Oh, okay. I didn't know, like, literally, where are these action figures? <laughs> where where can we find them? Yeah, I'd, I'd love action figures of, of our JLA. <laughs> yeah. And not like, you know, these kind of modern masks collections, but, like, OG ones as well. <laughs> like, we're collecting say, like, G1 the... Transformers or something. Yeah, basically. <laughs> I was going to say, like, the the thing that instantly struck me about the Morrison interview from 97 is that they, 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 they launched by kind of talking about just how, like, immensely popular the JLA run was, like, right out the gate, like how it just made this massive splash. And interestingly, they make a point that the series only launched in September 1997, mm. but the first trade paperback came out in February 1998. Yeah. So they 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 I think they they bring that up to highlight that like oh look look how popular it is DC got a trade paperback out that quickly which would explain how on earth a young John was able to read that first trade paperback in his school library in like the west country in the UK Yeah yeah and well I cuz I remember I got the first four trades and then couldn't get the fifth one because the series was still going and it hadn't been printed yet that's how close the trades of jla were being printed to the actual issues it's what frankly it's it's a miracle young john ever came across these like the journey to get across the atlantic into just this random little kind of school (laughs) um but yeah but sorry pj the big big takeaway for me is morrison in their own words kind of just having like the most immense amount of power like as a a kind of superstar writer yeah. You know, and basically saying, like, you know, it's saying, like, how did the series come about, you know? And I don't know if, if this is reiterated for you, but Morrison basically saying, like, um, they wanted to write a big story, a big series for DC. They hated gritty, grim, dark heroes of the 90s. So it wasn't like, so Morrison was basically like, I could do this any day of the week. I could do this any time in my life. I'm just going to wait till the moment's right for me. And then Morrison's like, oh, okay, I think the tide is turning. Basically writes to DC and goes, hey, I would like to write either Superman, Teen Titans, or the JLA. And what what what, what will you give me? 
and and then DC basically going like, oh, oh god, uh, yeah, hell yeah, you can have JLA. <laughs> <laughs> like that's that's insane. That is mad. That is mad. Imagine us trying to do that. It 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 would never happen again. Even if we were as good as Morrison, it would never happen again. Here's what, and I think going through the interviews, we should look at yours first and then mine because yours is the earlier one. With the, and then we've got that gap, and then we can sort of see where Morrison's coming from down the line. The one thing I do want to mention in mine is it says Grant Morrison, the 38 year old Scottish native, and now I'm like, far no. Grant Morrison was younger than I am now when they were writing these stories. But PJ wouldn't take heart, take heart, because wouldn't it be worse if it was like the 24-year-old Glaswegian? I don't like know. That, that would be much worse, I think. Yeah, I guess. Although at least then I could say, you know, they're some kind of child prodigy. <laughs> <laughs> and there's, a re- there's an excuse for me not having done that well. I think that, I don't know. I find that mildly encouraging. I think I think I probably would have just had to go lie down in a dark room for a bit if, if Morrison had been like 22 or something. It all would have seemed pretty hopeless. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, so PJ, my big takeaways are, and this is a few things I found quite interesting. This interview, if we assume this interview was done when, I don't know, only issue five issues had come out. So kind mm. of Woman of Tomorrow. So Morrison makes a point about how they wanted the series to, it had to be big. You know, it had to be big. They've talked about this before, but like, you know, you can't have these like D-list heroes. It's got to be the big, the big guns and they've got to be facing like big, big storylines. But, but what's interesting is that Morrison goes on to say they are incredibly proud of an upcoming two-parter, which goes between issues six and seven, which is all about angels. Okay. Right. So let's be honest. And in the same breath, the Wildcats crossover. Sorry, I nearly spat my coffee out. <laughs> they, they basically, in the same breath, these are Morrison's. Like these two stories are incredible, and I'm very proud of them. I mean, one of them's incredible. I'll, I'll give them that. Uh, there's also a nice little error in the article where the interviewer confuses Asmodiel and Zauriel. <laughs> And this comes up a lot in the issue, and I don't know if this is referencing yours, but they desperately, desperately, desperately want Xauriel to be called Hawkman. Yes, that does get a mention. Yes. Yeah, no, that was that was interesting. And apparently, like, editorial just put the kibosh on it because they were like, no, 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 you can't. We can't confuse Hawkeye's, a Hawkman's history anymore. Um, But yeah, sorry, I know I'm, 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 don't mean to dominate, but the the other points i kind of picked up were rock of ages and dark side were are, were already planned even though they are upcoming there's this reference to morrison having an idea for world without parents mm. and this is probably the wildest thing to me is that they ask morrison is that how do you feel when you're writing a team book about having to align with what the individual creative teams are doing on every solo title and morrison says that they they kind of hate it actually and they said that if they had their way jla would kind of exist not like in its own continuity but they'd never have to reference these changes at all or, or any developments in a character's uh, lives as referenced by the fact that morrison had written Issues five, six, and seven. So we're talking 
Woman of Tomorrow and the Angels two-parter before even seeing the electric blue Superman costume. Oh, wow. Or being told what his powers were. Okay. That's crazy. But it does... Ah, that... Yeah, that does sort of tie into something that they say in uh, in the later interview. Oh, interesting. Yeah. But I just found that wild because we've, we've independently talked about how those are perhaps some of the coolest, well, A, Superman moments in the series, but just also like electric blue Superman, you know, kind of giving the moon uh, its own, its own uh, poles and electromagnetic field. Um, all this kind of wild stuff, you know, and the way Porter draws the character it's it's insane i don't know how morrison even wrote those issues with in the in that state of kind of ignorance it's wild yeah that's that's crazy the fact that they did such good stuff with that version of superman without knowing what that version of superman was that that's a special kind of talent the um there's there's something i'll, I'll we can we can touch on later in the episode if we bounce back to that but I say the kind of the kind of thing at the end is that, uh, and this kind of the interview wraps up kind of in the way it opened with with Morrison just kind of very casually just kind of like flexing this kind of immense power and kind of deserved ego they have because Morrison kind of jokes about it and says like you know oh I've got a massive ear I've I've got a massive ego so that's why I'm not scared about dealing with these big characters and stuff I do get the impression that like they act cockier than they are. I think Morrison mm. does actually care a lot, but has a kind of persona. Um, but yeah, they basically say at the end, not only did they kind of just pick up the series because they wanted to, and they were like one of the biggest writers in the industry, but also like they're saying like, you know, how long are you going to do the series for? And Morrison's like, yeah, I'll probably leave around the year 2000, you know, oh, when okay. I, you know, you know, it's just going like, you know, I don't want to get bored, you know, I'll do what I want to do. Then I'll just bounce basically. Which is just an incredibly like casual, you know? Can you imagine like going like I, I I'm so big that I can basically ask DC for their flagship title and get it, and then just to be like I'm not going to cling on to that for the rest of my career. I'll just go when I get bored. Yeah, but that's also basically what they did, isn't it? Yeah, pretty accurate actually. <laughs> pretty damn accurate. Nice, amazing. Oh. Oh, I'm sorry, and I will shut up now, PJ. Uh, but the final revelation, which blew my mind, is that in a little kind of floating box where they talk about the other members of the creative team, we learned that Ken Lopez, the letterer, uh, letters directly onto the artwork. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's unthinkable in this day and age. I know. He said, <laughs> like, n- no layers or anything, all computers. Wow, okay. Yeah, mine does also have little box outs where they ask a couple of questions to the other members of the team. So I'll just quickly uh, let you know what Howard Porter says when asked, who are your favourite JLA members? And he goes with Martian Manhunter and Plastic Man because he just likes their visuals and how with them he can basically not get them wrong because they're shapeshifters. (laughs) But then least favourite JLA member for Howard Porter is Huntress. He just doesn't like her costume and isn't crazy about her. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, weird. I always, I always thought he drew quite a good Huntress. Yeah, I think honest. he does a brilliant Huntress. So that is, you know, Howard Porter can even draw the characters he doesn't like very well. Do you? Does your issue have an interview with Howard Porter? No, it doesn't. It's just that ah. little box out in the Morrison interview. Ah, mine does. Interesting. Oh, that'll be interesting to get to. Mm. So were there any big revelations for you then, PJ? With so your... in mine, 
obviously something we haven't really talked about is that before is that at the same time as Morrison was writing JLA, they were also writing The Invisibles. Mm. And Wizard bring that up in this interview. They straight out ask them, how does writing JLA compare to writing Invisibles? And Grant says, well, Invisibles is more personal. It's more like a diary for me. And then JLA is an escape and it's fun for me after I've been writing Invisibles. And then they flat out say, which do you like writing better? And Morrison says, I'd have to say Invisibles just because it's more personal. On any given day, though, JLA can be much more fun to do than something personal. Hmm. I think that kind of shows through as well, because if there's one word I would use to describe the entire run on JLA, it is fun. I have mm. so much fun reading these comics. I agree. 100%. Yeah. And I mean, like, you know, and the Invisibles, which, again, like you, I, I was kind of shocked to suddenly go, oh, God, yeah, they were running concurrently because there's adverts for the Invisibles in my in my issue. And um, yeah, I mean, like Morrison, you know, is basically trying to, like, find the meaning of life in, yeah. like, Invisibles. So, like. It's kind of heavy scuff, you know. Yeah. You maybe do need a break. <laughs> so then, then they ask uh, who their favourite character is in the JLA and least favourite, and they say Batman's their favourite at the moment, although it does change all the time. But Morrison says they sort of write Batman as uh, a sexy James Bond type uh, uh, character, as the, the high tech angle, and that makes yeah, that makes perfect sense to the way they write him because Batman does have this slightly sardonic sense of humor under Morrison that that is brilliant. You see, that is interesting because I know that when this is in some of the special features on the in the Batman in the Grant Morrison Batman trades, but in some of the interviews there, Morrison's talked about how when they were brought on by the editor, whose name I can't recall, to write Batman, they wanted Morrison to do kind of like vertigo weirdness yeah and he scared bat and then he was like no i want to do batman as james bond yeah i want to have like a big hairy chest and go on like big sexy adventures basically (laughs) (laughs) but their least favorite they say just means it's the one they haven't quite figured out yet and it's orion because they say i haven't done enough with him and to be fair orion hasn't shown up in many of the morrison written issues if anything mark wade's done more with orion at this point than morrison has interesting yeah no, but it's true because there's there's great big swathes where Orion is just not present. Like he's off doing other business, basically. Yeah. And, and then he yeah. turns up as kind of just like a blunt instrument that kind of like just beats the crap out of stuff. Yep. Uh, the next question they ask, and it's a question I asked in the episodes that were repertinent to it. Uh, they asked about the Sandman showing up, and oh, Morrison wow. says, yeah, I called Neil and asked if I could do it, and Neil was very kind to let me do it. So Neil Gaiman huh. did know it was happening, and and he even gave permission. Wow. I mean, the wildest thing to me is, it's like we're in an era where, like, ninety-seven. Yeah. That that's like. Sorry, we are dating ourselves now terribly. But like, I started secondary school in nineteen ninety-seven, at a time where while we had a family home computer. Because my dad, my dad works in that kind of area. Obviously, email weren't, wasn't a thing. Like the first time I went on the internet was in 1997, when I started secondary school because they had basically dial-up at my school. Hmm. So, you know, we're talking like an editorial process where like it's all phone calls 
and FedEx. Yeah. Because you can't email stuff. Or maybe you can, but it's very basic. You can and fax. Like, yeah, fax. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> and, and like a an era where I'm not saying like Neil Gaiman's number was in the, the phone book, but like where it's kind of a small enough industry where like Morrison could just give Neil Gaiman a call and basically go like, so, hey, like we don't know each other that well, really, but we're both we're both just two British names in this industry. So can I use your character? It's insane. <laughs> it really is. It really is. But I love the fact that that Gaiman knew it was happening and, and gave his blessing for it as well. It just makes that story even better. Well, it is nice as well because Morrison, by their own admission, kind of cultivated a bit of a punk rock star rabble rouser kind of attitude, particularly in the 80s and 90s when they were breaking in. And obviously they pissed off Alan Moore yeah. immensely. And uh, and Neil Gaiman is kind of like Alan Moore's favourite son in a way. So so yeah, I don't know. It's just kind of, I, it's, it's nice that he didn't just, they didn't just do the same and actually went to Gaiman and, and uh, asked nicely, which yeah. shows a, a developing maturity perhaps. <laughs> so only a couple of other things I really want to mention in this, because after these two questions, it's then a lot of spoilers for upcoming stories. <laughs> oh, right. Okay. They just flat out say, so what's coming next? And Morrison tells them. So, yeah. But the next bit is, uh, in a recent issue, Zariel called upon Christ for strength. That's a bit odd for a comic book. What are you doing that for? And Morrison just goes, well, no, there's been no pushback. I just see Zauriel as like the JLA's Thor, and the only reason people think it's weird is because it's Christianity rather than Norse mythology. Huh. You know, I, I'm actually struggling to remember the issue where that happens now. I can't remember exactly which one it is. I do remember that Zauriel did that. It might have even been in DC One Million. Yeah. Or was it when he was pulling Oh Aquaman yes. Yeah, that's the, it. The big yeah, chain and the, Starro. Yeah, maybe that was it, yeah. Huh. But then the the next one I wanted to bring up, and this this ties back into something you said. They say, Is there anything DC won't let you do? And Morrison apparently laughs and says, They only stopped me from having Superman pull the moon in issue seven because of Superman's powers and costume change. So Ah. They were actually planning to have Superman just physically pull the moon using his super strength. Well, interestingly, and this is where I'm, I'll, I'll, I'll bring up the factoid now. Then, yeah, um, the end of this issue, uh, the end of this special, is a day in the life of editor Ruben Diaz. Oh, okay. And in his day, one of the things that happens in his day is he gets a phone call from Joey Cavalieri. Who was who had greater editorial oversight at DC for Superman? Mm. Basically, to say you can't have Superman pull the moon back into orbit, so they need an alternative, <laughs> and they had to bounce the script back to Morrison. Okay, yeah, but apparently it looks like that's the only time they've bounced the script back to Morrison, <laughs> which is so weird because, like, again, as we know, Morrison wrote three issues including that issue, without knowing Superman's new power set. Yeah. It had to go back to a rewrite, I'm guessing. And then we got the greatest moment, possibly in the entire series, which is where Superman becomes an electromagnet and gives the moon opposing poles. And arguably an even better moment than what Morrison originally had in mind. Yes. My God. Like, yeah. And it's, it's funny because, I, I, like, in the Tomorrow Woman 
story, there's a bit where like Superman has a throwaway line or something where he says, if I understood these powers better, maybe I could do yeah. X, Y, or Z. And you do wonder, like, was that in the original script or was that Morris inventing or did Morrison <laughs> go back in and add that after that? <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's crazy. It's crazy. But yeah, then this interview is just a lot of, hey, what's happening next? Uh, and in which Morrison does also mention the upcoming hardcover graphic novel that they're working on with Frank Quietly that will include the crime syndicate. Interesting. Yeah, they do mention that in this one as well as as an upcoming project. So, yeah, it's funny how early on that seemed to have been in the works. And that explains why that, even though it came out like at the end of the run, it includes the earliest version of the JLA Morrison was writing. Oh, of course, yes. And Frank Quitely is obviously quite known for being quite a slow artist because there's a lot of detail. Yeah. So who's to say, you know, they didn't start work at this point with a script yeah. which was a few a few years old by the time it eventually came out. Yeah, that would make total sense to me. Wow. So was that all the revelations from the interview, or um, the only other little thing I wrote uh, in the um, talk about the upcoming Crisis Times Five? It turns out uh, JJ from who gets the the Thunderbolt mm. that we've seen already, that was set up in an issue of The Flash that Morrison wrote with Mark Miller. Oh, right. Appar- uh, apparently, Jay Garrick or someone is doing a signing using the Thunderbolt pen and JJ nicks it. Interesting. I had read that. I'd read that in um, the JLA, uh, the DC Encyclopedia, but I'd never actually seen that. No, I've not read that issue. I've, I've only read a, a little bit of Morrison and Miller's Flash run, and it's the... The human race, where the Flash has to race an inter intergalactic being through the universe to save both their worlds, it's weird, <laughs> but great. To be, to be honest, there's a little featurette on the Flash and some of the plans. You know, they they interview Mark Wade in this issue, mm. and uh, I think it does make me want to kind of track down the Miller Morrison Flash run. Yes, it could be quite interesting actually, particularly as it was kind of running concurrently. Kind of. Yeah, kind of. I well. My feeling on it is that, you know, if we're going to carry on after we've exhausted Morrison's JLA, <laughs> one of the things we should maybe look look at down the line is Mark Wade's run on The Flash, which includes mm. in the middle of it, Morrison and Miller's run on The Flash. Oh, interesting. Hmm. Yes, I think we should. Well, frankly, PJ, this podcast can never die. So exactly. we're, gonna have to, yeah, we're just going to have to keep coming up with content in one form <laughs> or another. Well, um, the next uh, feature for me, PJ, after, I have to say, after a um, gloriously dated double-page spread advert for Toy Fair, (laughs) uh, um, which uh, has Star Wars. It literally just has the logo, like no no context. It says Star Wars, X-Men, Spawn, Spider-Man, Batman, including an exclusive Kitty Pride limited figure by Toy Biz. Remember the days when Spawn was an actual draw? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can kind of see McFarlane's uh, tendencies on this double-page spread because, yeah, we'll get, yeah it, you can see it was beginning at that point. I, I will say, and it's nothing against Spawn. It's not a bad comic. I wouldn't say it was a great comic, but I think it certainly was a, a shocking indictment of the industry that early Spawn was seen as the best thing ever in comics at the time in the mid-'90s. It is perfectly of its time, shall we say. Yeah. But also, I don't have a lot of sympathy for McFarling after his legal shenanigans with, with Neil Gaiman. So, yeah. Um, 
But yeah, something for another day. Mm. But hey, so yeah, so then I have this um, interview with Howard Porter. Oh, well, let's go cool. into that because uh, my next one is Wizards Top 10 Moments from JLA so far. So let's let's do the Porter stuff first. Uh, well, okay, so the Porter stuff is, is again, I, I've taken notes and it's not maybe as much to kind of draw upon here because it's obviously ha- it's, it's Porter talking about, you know, their experiences of coming to the series. And then they do like, they ask him about each of the, of the Magnificent Seven. So he kind of just makes some comments on, you know, kind of like how he enjoys drawing them or whether he doesn't enjoy drawing them or his inspirations, that sort of thing. But the big uh, kind of thing for me was that Howard Porter was 27 years old okay. when, this, when the series dropped. Um, and his big break into the industry was drawing the Ray ongoing really? series. Yes, and it's interesting because the Ray makes a few appearances, particularly yeah. in the upcoming story. And I always thought he looked absolutely incredible. But again, my only introduction to the character is from the pages of JLA. So maybe Porter had a kind of uh, affinity for the character. That would make sense. And he also goes on to say, like, because he keeps flip-flopping. He goes like, oh, yeah, Superman's my favorite character. Oh, like, oh no, no, wait, no, Batman's my favorite character. And then he goes, oh, no, wait, he's probably Flash. Because he said he loves drawing the energy crackle on Flash, hmm. which is which is a lot like Ray, and he said and he and he brought that to trying to get Electric Blue Superman right, okay, with all, the, all the energy stuff. But the wildest thing is that they said like, what's it like working with Morrison? And basically, I'm 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 um, paraphrasing here, but basically Howard goes, I wouldn't know. I've never spoken to them. Oh, <laughs> okay, so. Basically, um, Porter and Morrison have had no verbal or written interaction at any point in time, at this point, issue five. So maybe they spoke at some point. I don't know. But he's basically saying, like, all their interaction comes through um, Ruben, the editor. And you just get... That's a real surprise, given how well they work together. I know, it's wild. And, and Porter's basically saying, like, you know, I get these incredibly detailed scripts from Morrison, which I'm kind of in love with. Like, I've never had a, a script that detailed before. And he's saying, like, but I, I have no idea if Morrison likes it. I have no idea if I'm drawing it as they envisaged. And um, I hope I can meet them at some point to say how much I appreciate their imagination, basically. Wow. Cool. So the rundown of other kind of observations were... Um, Porter prefers classic Superman and has trouble drawing Electric Blue Superman. You 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 feel like he sort of settled into drawing Electric Superman, didn't he? Yes, and I still think the Angel storyline, which I keep coming back to, looks absolutely astounding. Mm. And I don't think Electric Blue Superman has maybe ever looked better. No, agreed. Um. It makes a point of exaggerating Batman's features, so giving him longer ears yeah. and spikes and drawing him in shadow a lot, drawing inspiration from Kelly Jones. Yeah. Uh, hates having to draw Aquaman in group shots because it's always a nightmare trying to find a way to show him flying. Because <laughs> he's either got to be hanging from somebody or standing on a platform that Kyle made. Yeah. Um, and also, apparently, he says he is very... Uh, he, sa- he says, I think a weakness of mine is drawing women. He says he's not very good at drawing women. And apparently he was criticised for the way he drew Wonder Woman for giving her eye- making her eyes too big. Oh, okay. 
So he said he tries, he's constantly trying to make that better and draws a lot of inspiration from John Byrne. And the, the, he says he's looking forward to drawing Plastic Man, really excited to draw Plastic Man. And probably the single weirdest takeaway from this is that when this interview was, was kind of done, so kind of circuit issue five, Porter says, I am due to illustrate a crossover with Wildcats. Oh. So that's why I take a break from the series. So he didn't draw the key storyline because he took that time off to draw the Wildcats crossover and he wasn't due to return to the series until issue 12, which would have been halfway through Rock of Ages. Oh, wow. And as, of course, we know, that just didn't happen. Yeah, yeah. Didn't draw any of the Wildcats crossover. It was, all, was it Val Cemix? Yes, yes. Yeah. And, was, and was only gone for two issues rather than five. Yeah. That's crazy. <laughs> and sadly, we may never know. <laughs> we ne- may never know what happened there. Yeah. Wow. But yeah, so that's, that's basically the Howard Porter um, interview. Well then, shall we do a quick rundown of of Wizards' top ten moments? What they actually call the top ten coolest JLA moments Please, in the series yes. to date. Number ten can just go away because they have number ten being Hitman turning up and y- looking at Wonder Woman with his X-ray vision. <laughs> oh, guys! <laughs> and they've even put another bit in there saying, "Too bad he wasn't there for Big Barda." Ah, oh, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, let's let's take that one off the list, please. They did well. They did well up until a point. <laughs> uh, number nine, though, is the moment in Rock of Ages where uh, the end of the, that issue where Bruce Wayne is about to take on Lex Luthor. He says uh, Luthor doesn't know who he's messing with. It's Bruce Wayne. Let's take him out. Ooh, good choice. Which, yeah, very cool moment. Number eight is Aquaman diving down into the depths to try and find Starro, and then the moment when the, the seabed blinks. True, true, yes. Very cool. Yeah, I, I was sorry. I was doing mental gymnastics there because I was trying to think, like, remind myself when this issue came out. So, you know, I was yeah. trying to think, like, oh, what points have been? And, but you said it was kind of around Ultra, the Ultramarine. Yeah, time. so this would have been up to basically the Ultramarines. I think Sandman and then the One Million stuff would have been the last stuff that happened. Mm-hmm. Cool. So uh, number seven is uh, Green Arrow having to get his dad's bow and trick arrows out of the trophy room to go and fight the key. Also cool. Yes, yeah. also cool. Uh, number six is Wonder Woman single-handedly holding up Asmodel's chariot to stop it crashing into the earth. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty cool. Pretty cool. Five is Rock of Ages again, and they've gone with the cliffhanger where Flash, Green Lantern and Aquaman arrive back on Earth to find that Europe is now a fire pit. You really are spoilt for choice, aren't you, in this series? Like, there's yeah. a lot of awesome moments. Well, you'll you'll note a um, a rather shocking omission when we get mm. to the end of this list. Number four is is Superman fighting Asmodel. Yes, of course. Y- yield never. Yeah. Superman res- wrestling an angel. Yep. Uh, three is the moment from the first story arc where Batman has just taken down a mortal. And Protech is going, how can Batman do this? He's only a man. And they've just gone with that one panel where Superman is smirking. <laughs> Again, yes, very cool. God, I know we've done this series for like 50. We've done this for like 50 episodes, PJ, and I've forgotten about bits. Like, oh, God, yeah, that was a, good, that was a cool bit. Uh, they've, their number two moment is 
um, the atom giving Darkseid a lobotomy. Also amazing. Yep, again, we are spoilt for choice. And then their number one coolest moment from JLA is Superman breaking out of the chair, realising that the kryptonite isn't really there, and just taking down Protex when they're fighting the Hyper Clan. Interesting. Yeah, okay, cool moments. But again, we've not had Superman giving the moon magnetic poles. What I would argue with on this list is I would say, okay, let's get rid of the Hitman moment, move everything down one, and put Superman moving the moon in at number one. And then I'd be fine with it. Yeah, I think um, now, again, it's impossible to have a wrong opinion. It's all subjective. Um, However, yeah, I think they went for an interesting list rather than a necessarily accurate list. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah. There I'm is a, a little, bit, little bit at the end where they actually ask the JLA creators what their favourite moments were. So Ooh. Morrison actually goes for the moment in issue two when Superman is flying alongside Batman's plane in the double page spread. Because Morrison says, and I suddenly realised I could make this bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger every issue. They reference that moment in the interview, in, in, my, in, my, in my issue as well. They, they basically say like, when they saw the artwork, they were like, oh yeah, this would work. This series will work. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Porter goes with the atom giving Darkseid a lobotomy. Cool. Uh, John Dell, the inker, uh, goes with that one, uh, that, that splash page, Darkseid is, from Rock, but Rock of Ages. God, that's good, yeah. Yeah. That is really good. Uh, Dan Raspler, who took over editing from Kenny Lopez, goes with JLA 1 million when Superman 1 million punches his way through time. Interesting. But he also says, I also do want to mention the Sandman Green Lantern bit in JLA 22. Oh, God, yeah, that's good. And he liked the Adam Strange issues a lot. <laughs> you know, PJ, it's almost like this is quite a good series. Yeah. Like I'm, get, I'm, I'm getting all these moments. I'm like, God, that was good. Yeah, that was good as well. I forgot then, about that one. The final the final one is Pat Garrahy, the colorist, who says, it was the very last issue of Rock of Ages, JLA 15. It wasn't until that issue that I had any idea what Grant was doing. I was so confused. <laughs> Okay, well, maybe a more practical, uh, uh, a practical uh, entry there. Yeah, I, I feel like you could do like a, you could almost legitimately do like a top ten big moments and a top ten small moments. Yeah, you could. Because I, I really, really love the end of the um, the key storyline. Yes, where we just get a single page of Superman and Batman on a rooftop, and it's one of the most like quiet moments in the entire series. But I absolutely love that. Yeah, I also big fan in that issue of the boxing glove arrow taking the key out and the the comedy pratfall the key does. Oh god, yeah. Or um, or Batman grabbing Kyle and telling him that if he was really made of antimatter, we'd all be blowing up right now. Yeah, yeah. Nintendo has a lot to answer for. <laughs> oh man, yeah, there are some great moments. Mm. It's almost like we should do a podcast about this. That's a good idea. Yeah, um, but yeah, um. Any any more revelations from that list, PJ? Or? No, that's it, really. Just they are cool moments. And yeah, it's it's nice to look back sometimes and go, oh yeah, that was good. We um my next bit, which is also a kind of well, it's not really a list, but it's a bit more of a fluff piece, is called Last Liga Standing. Okay. And it's basically a who would win in a in a battle royale uh among the Justice League. Superman, probably. Well, or Jean. Well, no. 
Uh, but they did ask they did ask Morrison to chip in. So like um, they asked Morrison for their opinion on it, and um, I, I, they say like Morrison was a bit bemused as to why they'd be trying to kill each other, but went with the concept basically. And it kind of it plays out like a kind of um, somebody fighting somebody, and then the winner fighting the next person, and then there's another fight going on here. So it all whittles down to just being between like the two people left standing, and it's Batman. Oh, okay. Yeah, so who would win, PJ? Who do you think won, rather, in a fight between Green Lantern and Martian Manhunter? Jean. Yes. Who do you think won when it was for Flash versus the Martian Manhunter? I think I'm going to give that to Wally. Yes, Wally takes it. He basically just, uh, in Morrison's own words, basically just goes and grabs some fire and brings it (laughs) (laughs) it to them. Uh, Aquaman versus Wonder Woman. Wonder Woman. Yes. Yeah, I mean, sadly, poor Aquaman. It's really not much of a contest. Um, Meanwhile, we get a timeout, which is, where's Batman? And basically, (laughs) Batman turns up in in the Batmobile, does a kind of, like, skidding stop, jumps out, and disappears into the shadows. And then it's uh, Flash versus Superman. Electric blue Superman, I should say. Superman. Superman, yes. Uh, He saps the kinetic energy from the Flash. Uh, But Superman's costume is torn in the process. Oh, okay. Superman versus Wonder Woman. Well, if if it's electric Superman costume's torn, that's a containment suit. He needs it to help regulate himself. So I'm going to actually go with Wonder Woman now. Well, it's Superman, oh. but um, he, super, but Superman is his suit is greatly damaged by the battle, so it all comes down to Superman versus Batman. Of course, it does, and of course, Batman wings. He overwhelms he him. He overwhelms him with uh, microwave and uh, and heat energy, and uh, Superman can't focus, and then basically. Um, Stab Superman with the jump cables from the Batmobile and kind of absorb Superman into the engine of the Batmobile. Well. And then he drives away, happy motoring forever, laughs Morrison. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> and then there's like a little minor featurette on the side about how Morrison reckons Batman would defeat each of the leaguers oh, if he okay. had to fight them one by one. So, does it does it match up with what, what at all with what Mark Wade later did in the the Tower of Babel storyline? Well, again, I need to properly read Tower of Babel, uh, which I haven't done. <laughs> I haven't. I haven't in a very, very, very long time. But kind of. I mean, he feeds Aquaman to piranhas. Uh, okay. He causes. He hits Flash with like a tranquilizer which causes him to, while moving at super speed, just slip off the surface of the Earth and shoot off into space. Um, he hi- he hypnotizes or uses a taser on Green Lantern. He uses fire on uh, Martian Manhunter. And he beats Wonder Woman in a battle of wills through the lasso of truth and is able to basically command Wonder Woman to remain stationary for 100 years. Oh, okay. So that's Morrison's insight anyway, although I think they they may have just been having a bit of a laugh. Yeah. (laughs) Well, uh, the next feature in mine is actually a feature about a JLA cartoon, which at this point obviously didn't exist. So it's... Oh. 
the creators of Wizard basically saying, with Superman and Batman animated series being so popular and so good, why isn't there a Justice League cartoon? And so they actually get Paul Dini and Bruce Tim and ask them, why haven't you done this? And they give lots of really good reasons. And you've got lots of lovely Bruce Tim artwork, designs of characters, how they would appear in a potential JLA show. And what's interesting is how some of them look very different to how they would in the eventual JLA show. Aquaman, oh, for example, is the classic orange top, green trousers, short hair, Aquaman. Uh, green Arrow is based very much on 90s Oliver Queen, so a bit edgier with the hood instead of the Robin Hood outfit. Um, but yeah, of course, two, three years later, we, we did get the Justice League cartoon. And yeah, I think the the most... So there's a lot of stuff in it about, oh, we can't do it because of this and this and this, and there are rights reasons as well. But then there's a little bit about previous times when you have seen the JLA on screen, which some of these I knew about and some of these I didn't. So right. the first one is in the uh, Superman Aquaman Hour of Adventure in 1967 or 68. There were three animated segments where you had the JLA appear, which was Superman, Flash, Atom, Hawkman and Green Lantern. Really? And I have vague memories of that. I think Channel 4 used to show that in the late 80s or early 90s on a Sunday morning when I was a kid. So I saw oh, some oh. of that. But I only remember it vaguely. Then there's obviously Super Friends, which I didn't realise ran from 73 to 86. Jeez. Wow. Yeah. I, I had no idea. Yeah, me neither. That's insane. <laughs> it makes it even weirder that I've never seen it. No, I've never seen it either. Again, I didn't have... I don't think it ever really had a screening in the UK. No, I'm not entirely sure. I, I don't remember it having one, no. So, next we get to, and I had no idea this existed, there's a photo, and I kind of want to see it, but it sounds awful as well. Legends of the Superheroes, which were two live-action specials from January 18th and 25th in 1979 which included Adam West and Burt Ward as Batman and Robin, and then awful versions, apparently, of Black Canary, Huntress, Captain Marvel, The Flash, and Green Lantern, and... Oh, God. Really? What? Sorry, what was it called? Legend of... Legends of the Superheroes. From the description, it sounds kind of like maybe it was some sort of um, Star Wars holiday special thing. Oh, right. Wow. Because you get equally campy villains, apparently, and it says you'd watch these to see Solomon Grundy beat up guest star Ed McMahon. And, yeah. Wow. I No, I had no idea that existed. I thought you were going to bring up the 90s JLA movie. Oh, I'm getting movie. there. I'm getting oh, there. Oh, sorry. Yep. There was, uh, apparently in uh, 1989, a script for a JLA show that was going to start in 1990 but it was never made into a film. And then, 1997, you get Justice League of America, a pilot episode for a live-action show, which I have seen. And it is... I have seen. Awful! Is that the one with Marshman Hunter, Flash, Atom, Fire, and Green Lantern? And Ice, yeah. The pilot and episode Ice. has Ice joining the team. And Green Lantern's turquoise for some reason. And Guy Gardner... <laughs> Yes. And the costumes are awful. Uh, you know, it's there's oh, it's such a bad thing. Well, there's 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 a TV now PJ, you're you're better informed than me, but there was a live action flash TV series, wasn't there? Yeah, in the uh, early to mid 90s with John Wesley Shipp playing the Flash and Mark Hamill was the the trickster in that. 
Yeah. So is it is it the same? Is that the same Flash who was nope. in that movie? No. Nope. Oh, oh interesting. Weird. Yeah. It's it's awful. Um, I would recommend nobody ever watch it. Huh. I think, yeah, so when did the Justice League cartoon launch then? Was that the early 2000s? Early 2000s, yeah. I, I don't know if it was 2002 or 2003, maybe in 2001, but somewhere around then. It's a great cartoon. Yeah, it's brilliant. Absolutely yeah. brilliant. Really, really enjoyed it. I remember I watched that um, uh, I, I watched that when I was at university because I was cool and uh, I have to, I remember, God, in the early days of the internet, like kind of 2006-ish, I want to say, like having to go on some really old kind of like streaming sites because you just couldn't find it anywhere else. Yes, I, I, I watched it online illegally. I do apologize. And um, I've since bought the DVDs <laughs> as, as, by way of apology. But um, it, it would be like, because it took so long to load an episode with like the, the quality of the internet we had, I would like open the page, set the little kind of like web browser window buffering, and then go and cook dinner and then come <laughs> back in the hope that it would be ready to watch at that point. Wow. Wait, the times have changed, PJ. Yeah. I just watched it all on Cartoon Network. Yeah. No, I didn't. No, I didn't have that actually. Although I was very jealous of the people who did. <laughs> yeah, but that's that's pretty much the main takeaways for me from that JLA on TV feature. Well, I, I don't know if you've got a similar thing, PJ, but my next segment is it's a kind of potted history of the JLA. Nope. Well, um, my big takeaway from this is that it's very confusing. Uh, mostly because of the many editorial reboots that came and went. Like, yeah, they even actually have a sidebar where they just draw attention to how confusing it is. And okay. They, yeah. So they, 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 and in, what a nice, a nice thing is, is that they, they credit Mark Wade for being their continuity expert. In kind of just they, he just knew everything, so they asked him basically. Okay. So, you, so you get kind of like a chronological timeline of like. You know, in universe, the JLA founded, this happened, this happened, this happened, and then you get to the present day. Um, they do mention briefly, and we, we've talked about it because you, you've explained it to me, but they we've talked about the weird thing where, like, the League was founded, but Superman wasn't there, hmm. and then they kind of didn't become a team, but they did. And then it kind of says, like, yeah, they thought about becoming a team, but then decided to kind of, like, think about it for a while. And then they mention in the continuity the fact that they came together assembled by a team called a hero called Triumph to fight an alien threat, but then the event got erased from their memory and Triumph got erased from history. Okay. I wonder if that will be relevant. And no, then that can't be relevant. Th know. That won't be I'm sure that can't that won't mean anything. And then they talk about the kind of the classic origin story that we kind of know now really that kind of like the events of year one basically yeah um but yeah but in the sidebar and pj you may be able to comment on this they talk about the effects of crisis on infinite earths and what it kind of meant for the continuity um so as of 1986 the editorial e edict was that batman joined the league shortly after its founding whereas superman 
only helped out the league on occasion. But the 1987 revamp of Wonder Woman built her from the ground zero, meaning that she was a new hero in the world Mm. and was kind of much fresher than the JLA, who'd been around a few years. Yeah. So they mentioned the big continuity issue this causes. And then they also explain why Black Canary was made a founding member of the JLA. It was for the reason of everybody remembers Wonder Woman founding the JLA. Only that didn't happen. So the editorial edict is, oh yeah, that woman you remember founding the League? That was actually Black Canary. (laughs) Okay. Which is kind which sets the stage for like year one. Yeah. And because because again, for me, kind of somebody who doesn't have that deep encyclopedic knowledge of the JLA's history versus, say, as I would for maybe the Avengers, I'd always thought it was really weird that Black Canary was a founding member of the JLA. Yeah. In the continuity of ninety seven. I imagine that's that's been rebooted since. I, I think it's it's gone back to being Wonder Woman now nowadays. But yeah, so but that that's it, PJ. That's that's the weird reason why why black canary is is a thing mm-hmm. in the league history <laughs> yeah no that's that is not even close to what i have next in mind what's yours i have from the desk of prometheus where okay this is so weird they've basically <laughs> wizard have written short profiles of all the jla members from the point of view of prometheus saying how oh they beat me how will i beat them next time it's it's not very good but oh. Okay. What's interesting is it's all photos. So they've taken photos of a desk. The f- it's three double-page spreads. The first one has a photo of the moon with a little circle around it and written on it going, The Watchtower. And then photos of sets from Alien and Space 1999 to be the inside of the Watchtower. Little Polaroids. What? The next double-page spread has little... You remember you could get those really little CDs. They weren't a full-size CD. They were tiny little discs. Yeah, like uh, mini-discs, yeah. Yeah, and they're all labelled with the names of the superheroes. And then you've got Polaroids of some of them. So on this page, you have Superman, Christopher Reeve. Wonder Woman is the Linda Carter Wonder Woman. Flash is the John Wesley Shipp one from the 90s TV show. Huntress is the one from the Legends of the Superheroes thing I mentioned just now. (laughs) Wow, okay. There's a black and white photo of a guy in a Plastic Man costume. I do not recognise it at all. I don't know if it's just a cosplayer they found or what. And then Green Lantern, they've clearly just made a Green Lantern mask, stuck it on some guy, (laughs) put him under a green light and taken a photo of his head. (laughs) Yeah. And then the next spread, you've got Batman, which is Michael Keaton, his photo has been put on top of the photo of Aquaman, covering Aquaman up so you can just see the edges, which is some fish. (laughs) No photos of Big Barda or Orion. Steel, and they've gone with the 90s TV movie version, Shaquille O'Neal. Interestingly, there is a very small throwaway reference to that movie in the day in the life of editor Ruben Diaz, <laughs> where he says that at one point of the day, he gets sent a hundred set photos from the Steel movie and he needs to sign them off for continuity. Oh, wow. Okay, well, I think it's best if we all forget that movie as well. Um, 
Then there's a photo of Catwoman, and it's the Michelle Pfeiffer one. And then there is a photo of Zauriel from behind, because what they've done is they've taken a still from the film Michael, starring John Travolta, in which he played an angel. So it's just wings and an arm. Now, do 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 they any anywhere in this feature draw attention to where they get they got these photos from? No, not at all. Okay, so this is that like. A, egregious on an artistic level, but also kind of like illegal, right? Oh, what? Do you mean Wizard, where they got the photos? Oh, yeah, they say copyright and where oh. they got the photos. Sorry, I thought you meant where Prometheus had taken his photos, but no. No, no, sorry, no. Okay, no, cool. So they are referencing that they've just taken screenshots from random yeah. things. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, like, this is bare bones content, isn't it? It really is. It's not very good, and I'm just going to skip it now. There's nothing interesting worth noting in it. it. None of it is at all relevant to what Morrison does with Prometheus down the line. It's just it's just filler. The only thing I can possibly now again, I'd have to see it, but I I also I happen to own the Alex Ross Wizard special. Mm, yes, and there's a featurette in that which shows a lot of the reference photos that Ross uses for yes, his paintings. I remember that. Yeah. And he would make kind of basic costumes and get his friends to dress up in them and then put kind of dramatic lighting over them. So could I perhaps be charitable and say that the Green Lantern costume was was basically like a recycled photo from the Alex Ross special? It might have been, but it, it's very much Kyle's mask and I don't uh, remember if... No, 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 he doesn't. Huh. Yeah. Well, my, well, I mean, I, I have nothing to say about my next section because it's basically like the top ten JLA slugfests of all time. Oh, okay. And they just reference like great big battles the JLA had, and um, there really was nothing of interest to bring up there. Fair enough. Although they they um, they make a throwaway gesture to the failed attempt to make the JLA Avengers crossover in 1983, oh, okay. and they just basically say that like. Uh, uh, legal legal problems kind of sank it. Um, but they said it would have been written by Jerry Conway, illustrated by George Perez. Yep. Uh, it, it would have been sensational, uh, particularly as it would have featured the classic lineup for each team. We're talking about Captain America, Thor, and Iron Man level Avengers. <laughs> oh, and they also draw attention to a fight between the X-Men... And the JLA, which took place in issue four. All of... Access. All Access. There we go. PJ knows. Yeah. Yeah. That's a fun fight, actually. I really enjoyed that. Well, they're basically a little salty because they say this shouldn't have been a fight and Superman should have just won in seconds. But there we go. Well, no. It, 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 to be fair, it made perfect sense because Superman was taking on Jean Grey and she just got in his mind and stopped him in his tracks. Yeah, I mean, basically. <laughs> like, I mean, you'd have to, right? She's one of the most powerful telepaths in the Marvel Universe. I, I, it was fine. What's your, what's your next feature, PJ? Uh, so my next feature is when it starts looking into the, the Big Seven solo books. So ah. I get a little four pages about Batman and where he is at the moment, talking to some of the creators working on his books, and they're sort of discussing the framework of No Man's Land, and because that's about to happen. Oh, interesting. Yeah, we've basically just had Cataclysm and we're in the midst of the Road to No Man's Land short story arc. And then, yeah, it's talking about how the year of No Man's Land upcoming is essentially going to be 
an anthology where creators are going to come on, tell a full story, and then leave. But it will all also weave into this ongoing No Man's Land thread and talking about some of the creators who are going to be involved. And uh, yeah, it's it's pretty interesting. And there's there's a little bit in here where Grant Morrison says, what does the world think of Batman? And Morrison's like, ah, I don't buy that Batman's an urban legend. That doesn't make any sense to me. I do buy that no one really knows what Batman actually is, and they struggle to trust him because of that. Interesting. There was a tiny little throwaway mention by Morrison in the interview that apparently the Batman editorial team at the time which, of course, is pretty massive, given that, you know, there were a lot of Batman books at the time. Like four, I think? Four yes. ongoing books? Yeah. Were quite against Batman being on the Justice League. Yeah. Yeah, apparently Morrison had to do a, a lot of arguing to to get, get their way, basically. <laughs> That's the only kind of interesting thing I could think of. From the, yeah, no, that, I think that given, given what was going on in the Batman books at the time, that makes total sense to me. Why they would be sort of going, well, we don't really want Batman in the JLA because it doesn't make sense with what's going on in Batman. But I, th- I think they've made it work. Well, interestingly, we uh, in my in my issue, and I, I'm really, I'm not probably, I don't really have much to bring to the table talking about them, but they do have a featurette on each of the Magnificent Seven, which is kind of less like what's going on in their individual series and more of a more of an overview, more of a retrospective of them as a character. Okay. And, um, so yeah, there's a big section on Batman. But again, I, I didn't really, there wasn't anything kind of Morrison-y to kind of bring away from it. So I don't really have much to say on it. Um, other than, yeah, they talk about, you know, something that you brought to my attention, PJ, which was the uh, all the different Batman titles and what each one tried to achieve. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. You know, like, this one's more about crime, this one's more of a team-up book, that sort of thing. Yeah. An interesting one we do have, um, sorry, assuming there isn't kind of more you'd like to bring up. At well, this no, point. the only thing is, with relationship to what you just said, is No Man's Land is where they stopped doing that, and the four books were just telling a continuous Batman story for a year or so. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and of course we do get, and it'll be upcoming, but we do get a, a No Man's Land kind of tie-in. In yes. the pages of JLA, which is, yes, which is a good one. Um, I actually quite like that story as well. It's quite a nice one. Now, interestingly, and because that was written by Mark Wade, so this is a, this, this is me trying to segue. We actually have a small featurette on JLA Year One. Ah, in which they interview Mark Wade and Brian Augustine. Hmm. Uh, co-wrote it. Yeah, which is actually kind of timely because I I know I think I do believe that Brian Augustine just passed away. Oh, they did he? That's a shame. Yeah, I know Mark Wade wrote quite a, a, an emotional kind of tribute to him, actually, uh, and and actually had some fun. Um, some uh, basically said like how even though Augustine was a bit older than Wade, they became really good friends uh, because um, they basically there was some big edits, there was some big DC kind of dinner where like a lot of the creators were there, and apparently like a lot of the younger creators who go unnamed, started goofing around and rubbing the edge of their wine glasses to make uh, to make a mm. noise, uh, which apparently was really annoying some of the higher-ups. <laughs> and apparently Wade did it. Wade wasn't involved, but then was like, oh, that looks funny, and did it once. 
And then basically some big wig came over, saw Mark Wade making stupid noises on his wine glass and uh, tore him a new one in front of everyone. <laughs> and uh, Brian Augustine stood up and defended him. Oh wow! And even though it didn't, he said even though it didn't help, they became they became really good friends off the back of that, <laughs> which That's is nice. quite yeah, just a nice stupid story. Um, but yeah, but the, the fun kind of thing here is is that um, Wade comes across as really like um, kind of like a a champion of continuity. Yeah, I, I don't I don't want to say that he comes across as like defensive, but I think he he, he kind of it seems to be his skanks is that DC. And by extension, other companies, Marvel basically, shouldn't be ashamed of their continuity. And yeah. there's so he's basically saying, like, you know, year one is kind of like, look, we don't need to be ashamed about the fact that we have a history. We should actually embrace it. And um Yeah, and they love the Silver Age. And um the kind of there's actually some reference to how Morrison and Wade, despite being wildly different people, became quite good friends is that they both share this kind of affinity for a more hopeful colorful era of comics yeah oh and the also weird now pj you've you've read year one so maybe you can fill fill me in here but they do mention brian Augustine and mark wade mentioned that they are in a tentative deal with morrison for them to introduce a villain in the pages of year one who's more of a manipulator and in the shadows who would then graduate so that when year one wraps up, that villain would be a villain in the pages of JLA. And I think it, it, it sort of happens, but I think it really only that I remember for one issue of JLA and it's one of the Mark Wade fill in ones. Yeah. I think I can, I, is that the one we were just referring to? Is it is it the the no man's land tie-in? Yeah, yeah, that's what I thought actually, and I was like, I don't recall that com- becoming a bigger thing. If I'm honest, no, it didn't really. Um, but yeah, so yeah, that's kind of all I um all I have to say on on, on that on that little segment. Yeah, well, my next one is then what's going on in Superman solo books, and it's just the creative team are basically taking him more global he's going to get more involved in in global stuff and i don't remember any of this i thought this was around the time the creative teams basically all got dumped off superman and they did a a revamp but that may have been a year later or so um even the bit what does morrison say about superman is just oh yeah superman's leader of the justice league and everyone regards regards him as such it's not like the previous thing where they'd have a different leader every month superman's in charge but yeah, not much of particular interest in there. A lovely Jerry Ordway drawing of Superman, but that's about it. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Well, again, like Morrison has some tiny comments on each of the leaguers, to be honest. Um, the, um, oh, dearie me. I mean, like I said, there's not much to bring up here. Um, they have something interesting. They, they make a few interesting comments about Jean, which I thought were quite interesting. Um, they said that. In Morrison's opinion, Jean is slightly perturbed by Wonder Woman's warrior nature, as it reminds him of the violence of the White Martians. Okay. Also goes on to say, and I, I think this is really a concept which was not developed further, also of the time, um, Jean would have no concept of sexual discrimination towards Wonder Woman, as his people are shapeshifters and don't recognize gender in the same way as humans. 
Although, while a nice comment, I don't think that's, to my knowledge, really been developed with the character. Because even though they are shapeshifters, the Martians have kind of always come across as gendered, I want to yeah. say. Yeah. That kind of seems like the kind of thing a, a, a more modern team might develop in a better way. Yeah, potentially. Also goes on to say that in in because Morrison loves Jean, but goes on to say that like in their opinion, Jean isn't really liked on a wider scale. And this is Morrison's words now, kind of due to racism. He's too <laughs> alien to relate to. And even though the league have had aliens on the team, uh, they often like Hawkman, for example, in some incarnations, uh, they generally just look like a kind of normal human. So yeah, that was just Morrison's Morrison's opinion, which I thought was quite okay. interesting. Cool. Well, the next thing in mind is the competition. And what they've done is they've commissioned a double page spread drawing of the Justice League's trophy room. Okay. There, there are forty five items in this trophy room. To win the competition, you have to identify all of them. And there are some deep cuts. There's things in this that I don't know what they are. I'm not gonna go through it in detail. I'm sure people can probably find the image somewhere online, but yeah, you got things like the original Hour Man's costume, Steel's armor, uh, if the IF device and the implicate field. Yeah, so many different things on this page. It's crazy. There's stuff I do not know what it is. Um, but yeah, you see I don't now know who I'm won frustrated that, contest, that I, I'm frustrated that I can't see this now. I would I would very much like to uh, kind of pour over this when this episode comes out. I will put a photo of it up on uh, on my Twitter and my Instagram. Oh, good shout! Yeah. No, and then, <laughs> yeah, uh, then um, uh, the listeners can also join in this twenty-three-year-old uh, competition. <laughs> well, speaking of contests, PJ, this now I was really hoping you you could shed some insight on this. There is a contest in my special called the JLA Tryout Contest, and the grand prize is that you will appear as a me- in the pages of JLA as a as a member of the team whose membership gets officially rejected. Oh. Not a so clue. So my big question to you, is this retro? Yeah, it could be, couldn't it? It could be. I did a cursory search online and I could not find any reference to this actually panning out or what happened but yeah like that blew my mind that would be so cool if retro was actually a competition winner if if the design of retro was based on someone who'd won this contest because it would kind of like have to like if it was going to be anywhere in the series and it went ahead it would have to be that wouldn't it yeah i can't think of anyone else it would either have to be retro or Prometheus under the helmet, but that wouldn't make sense. No, no, it's wild. Like, because there's um, a similar thing happens in the pages of Batman Incorporated, where uh, uh, some contestant won a, I think it was like a charity auction, won a cameo in the book, and they had a choice of either being a villain that, like a like a criminal that Batman would punch, or like a, a civilian that Batman would save. But they actually appear as themselves and their name, basically. Okay. But yeah, I, again, unless I, maybe we'll never know. Might have to might have to do some more research into that one. Yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> I need to find that out. Is it retro? God, yeah. The only, the only other weird thing is I have like a, a list of all the JLA's uh, headquarters over the years, uh, which is not that interesting, to be honest. It's a bit of a fluff piece. But the only interesting thing I took away from it was that in current, I say current, in DC continuity of this time, teleporters are a thing. Yeah. But it is a regulated technology and is controlled by the government. Hence why, for example, Green Arrow has to teleport from Star Labs to the moon. But also explains why Batman, the urban legend who doesn't exist, has a private teleporter of his own design. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, okay, that's a cool, that's a cool feature. Yeah. That is cool. So the next one of mine is is quite interesting because it's the Green Lantern bit. So it's basically in Green Lantern series, it's just after the Emerald Knight storyline where Hal Jordan time travels to the future and Kyle and Hal team up. When Hal leaves, he gives Kyle a ring that can duplicate so that Kyle can start a new Green Lantern core. And Kyle leaves Earth, leaves Jade as Earth's Green Lantern, and he flies into... So she takes over the main Green Lantern book, and Kyle flies out for a two-part prestige format series that I have read called The New Core, where he's trying to recruit and build a new Green Lantern core. And it goes horribly wrong, because the first person he recruits turns out to be an evil despot. <laughs> um, Come on, talking Kyle. Talking about that and then coming back to Earth. But I think the most interesting thing in this is actually Morrison's view of Kyle. And I'm just going to read this verbatim. So, certainly a character for whom fan approval is split right down the middle. Green Lantern Kyle Rayner is the guy Grant Morrison believes you'd hate for one simple reason. He's got a power ring and you don't. And then it goes into Morrison's quotes. And Morrison says, He's the guy who got lucky, the kid who just happened to find a power ring, and now he's become something special. If you were going to despise any member of the Justice League, the one person you're going to hate is Green Lantern. You would think, if I can take the ring off that guy, I'd be just as good as him. It's funny, because there's this huge segment of fans that hate Kyle as well, so it's kind of playing off that. I see him as kind of an underdog figure. I like Kyle, he's basically just trying his best against really difficult opposition. Very true. Yep. Yeah, and I think that kind of sums up a lot of what Morrison was doing with the character. Because, yeah, again, we have that that Og scene in in Rock of Ages where a, a random bystander just basically starts berating Kyle for those exact same reasons. Exactly, yeah. Hmm. Well, my uh, again, my um, uh, the, the only thing I took away uh, from the Superman featurette is that I know who to thank now for designing Electric Blue Superman. <laughs> it's an artist called Ron Friends. Oh so, yes, yes. So thank you, Ron. Uh, and they do they do make um, the comment that at this point in time, DC was being widely kind of mocked and ridiculed in the popular media for their redesign of Superman. Yeah. And but they were kind of saying like, well, look, it is it's good press. Like, you know, people are paying talking about Superman, and this does kind of tie into I. What I said in a previous episode is I vividly remember seeing a news story on television about the Superman redesign. Yeah. Yeah, I remember that, actually. It was a big deal. It definitely happened. <laughs> uh, but apparently um, there was such pushback on designing the costume. They uh, Ron, Ron Friends mentions that the thing that kind of made it possible was Kingdom Come. Because Alex Ross had proven that you could do an alternate version of the classic Superman S without yeah. the world ending. Yeah. And I remember, actually, I think in the 
Wizard Alex Ross special, they do reference that as well, about how it was quite a big deal to give him the black and red S rather than the classic one. Yeah, I, I really like the Kingdom Come outfit as well. Oh, me too. No, I think it's great, actually. It's brilliant. But yeah, so um, I don't know what's next on your agenda, PJ. Mine is The Flash, and it just talks oh, okay. about Mark Wade and Brian Augustin returning after the uh, Morrison Miller run on it. And it's the upcoming Chain Lightning storyline in which, spoiler alert, Wally West dies and a new Flash just appears out of nowhere. Completely different costume as well. A costume I quite like. Um, that is going to be referenced in JLA. We're going to be talking yes. about that in a few issues time. Uh, and and then I think, talks- yeah, I think I put, even though I, I don't have the flash encyclopedic knowledge that you do, PJ, I think I know what's up with that, he said. Possibly. Yeah, well, well, we'll discuss it in more detail when we get to the relevant issue, because he only appears in one issue of JLA, that version of the flash. Um, I think he appears with the league in an issue of Superman around the time as well then, and he is on the cover of JLA Avengers issue three. Uh, oh, God, yes. <laughs> yeah. But then Morrison's take on The Flash is that The Flash is the celebrity superhero because everyone knows his identity and he's a nice guy. He's always smiling, so everyone likes him. He's he's like the, the big pop star of the DC superhero pantheon. Do, do you have, in each of your featurettes on the different heroes, do you have like a little sidebar, which is how that character views the other members of the League? No. What I have is like a, a little, here's their powers... And then special notes. Um, so like on Batman's, it was like, don't try and make him smile. And, you know, typical 90s wizard stuff. The, the inter- they do, again, talking about like the Flash kind of just generally being like very likable. Um, they, they mention when they're talking about the Flash that like that Flash's opinion of Batman is that he remembers hanging out with Batman when he was younger when obviously he was Kid Flash and him and Robin would obviously be like pals. And he was saying he maybe remembers, Morrison's take on it is that he maybe remembers a slightly kinder Batman before he became maybe quite as grim. So Morrison's opinion was that Flash is comfortable talking to Batman in a way that no other leaguer would be. Right. That makes sense. Yeah, which I thought was quite interesting actually. But yeah, that's that's it really for the Flash stuff in mine. Do you have a section all about the new members of the League? Yes, yes. After I've done Jean, Wonder Woman and Aquaman, that's when we get into the new members. Oh, did do you have anything to bring up well, from that? Mm-hmm. I'll go through those quickly. Uh, oh, please. Jean, it's about his... This was his first solo series as Martian Manhunter for like 40 years, written by John Ostrander. Um and uh, drawn by Tom Mandrake. I read this series back in the day. I remember really liking it, but it didn't last that long. What's interesting about it is it started with an issue zero. Then it was issue one million. (laughs) Then it had an annual. And then you had issue one. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as much as I love Jean, I mean, a Jean solo series is going to be a hard sell anyway. Maybe you don't want that many gimmicks before you start the actual show. Yeah, it was. I think it was just maybe timing was wrong and everything. But I remember them doing some interesting things. Um, Jean was using Zonzor as his base of operations. Oh, cool. Um, Gem, son of Saturn, turned up because, you know, that's fun. <laughs> he was staying at Zonzor to recover from the Rock of Ages fallout, apparently. Uh, 
Morrison's take on Jean here, it matches what you said, so viewed with suspicion because he doesn't really try to look any more human than he than he does. He's this big green guy. But Morrison's take at this point is that because he's got his own headquarters in the Antarctic, he's sort of policing the Southern Hemisphere, and he's more well-known in, in the Southern Hemisphere, like Australia, New Zealand, and Latin America are big fans of Jean and potentially know him more than they know Superman. Now, I've heard... Now, again, I've read that quite a lot, I think. Um, and we referenced it in One Million when we were talking about Monte Video. Yeah. So, yeah, interesting that Morrison would bring that up. I wonder yeah. how much of that was stemmed from Morrison's thinking. Yeah, it might well have done. I mean, if, if it was sort of became a thing that Jean's headquarters was Zonzor, then, yeah, that would make total sense. I don't think that really gets mentioned in JLA, but, yeah. Once again, you can lay a lot of cool ideas at the doorstep of Morrison, which I, which I kind of, I always suspect. <laughs> uh, uh, but no, PJ, any more, any more uh, individual hero facts? So the Wonder Woman uh, is just, John Burns only just left the book, new team coming in. Wonder Woman's back from the dead and being a goddess. She's about to fight Cronus and the father of Zeus. Morrison's take on her is that they're a bit suspicious of her uh, because even though Superman's an alien, he's almost like the American flag, but Wonder Woman's made of clay. She's from Greece. There's She looks at bringing peace, but she always ends up fighting. There's some contradictions there. So people like her, but they're a little wary of her, is the mm. Morrison view of Wonder Woman in terms of her public perception. Not much to talk about in terms of her solo book at that point, though. Um, and then finally, Aquaman who apparently his book, which I genuinely thought wasn't actually happening at this point in JLA, but his book is just hit issue 50. Peter David's left and Eric Larson has arrived and is introducing new Aquaman villains and the um, liquid metal hook, which can turn into an actual gold hand, which I think we do see in JLA down the line, don't we? Oh, is that meant to be liquid metal? Yes. Doesn't look like I, it, does it? But I didn't know that. I assumed he had like... Um... Like a, like an action figure, I assumed he could kind of just plug in different ones for different occasions. Yeah, yeah, and then I think Morrison's perception of Aquaman in terms of the public is is weird. What having a king on the league, so you know. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, like I'm trying to think, like when to my not post post Morrison's run on JLA, I think Aquaman leaves the team pretty sharpish. I want to say. Like he, um, he's, he, I think he's absent for a lot of the Wade stuff, isn't no, he? No, he's, like, he's definitely there for Wade's run. I thought Plastic Man kind of stepped up and kind of. Plastic took... Man is the only one of like the the extra members who stays, but Aquaman's. I remember quite a few Aquaman moments that Wade, uh, where Wade uses him. No, I'll take no. I, I believe you, PJ. No, you've got a better better knowledge of that period than I do, but I know like. When the Joe Kelly stuff, there's obviously no sign of Aquaman. And yeah. I think he turns up in the background of the Busick stuff. At which point, you know, because I know the character went through a lot of revisions, but at that point, the char he's lost the beard. He's gone back to kind of like the classic costume, but he's got like um, the magic hand made of blue water. Yeah. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. Poor guy. The character's had a lot of revisions over the years. Yeah. To try and keep him relevant. Um, but yeah, PJ, um, do you, you have a section about new members? Do you I not? do. Yeah. So it's about the, the new seven members. It's got a double page image on it from JLA Titans, the Technus imperative of 
the entire JLA together, including the new members. I'm going to be honest, not a lot of interest in here. It's all stuff we've already talked about in terms of what they bring to the team and stuff that Morrison is going to do with them down the line. The most interesting things for me here are where they talk about Steele and how, one, Morrison themselves became was surprised that Steele sort of became a backup leader for when Superman's not around. It's just a role that Steele sort of stepped into and Morrison went with. Um, and also the idea that, as we've said before, this was like the Greek pantheon and Steele came in as Hephaestus. Morrison actually says that at this point in the writing, the Greek pantheon thing has kind of gone. They're not filling those roles anymore, but Steele is the exception because he's still doing the Hephaestus thing. Interesting. Um, but there's not, to be honest, not much else of interest um, in this. It's all sort of teasing for what's coming and, yeah. Well, interestingly for mine, being written at an earlier point, is that there's a lot of teasing. Like, they're being very coy about it, so it's got that kind of speculative nature as to who, like, who's coming, who's confirmed, who's who's an enigma. But Morrison keeps and Morrison and Wizard, you know, in the same 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 kind of I can't lose my words. They're in agreement basically. They're both pushing this idea that there will definitely, definitely, definitely be twelve members of the team. Okay. So it's really like you've got the Magnificent Seven, and there will be five new members. Uh, Zauriel is confirmed. Plastic Man is confirmed. Um, Green Arrow and Aztec are confirmed. And then there's um, this whole thing about Captain Marvel and how Captain Marvel is going to be on the team. <laughs> and and it's interesting because Morrison is not really banging the Greek god drum at this point. Instead, they're talking about the Knights of the Round Table a lot, okay. which I think is quite interesting. Uh, but they go on about how Captain Marvel is very much meant to be the and I get I have to say my Arthurian legend is not what it should be, uh, the Sir Percival of of the group, who's basically meant to be the perfect innocent knight. Okay, um, and yeah, it's it's kind of wild that they're talking with such certainty about how Captain Marvel is going to be on the team, and obviously that doesn't really pan out. Although they also mentioned that they plan and really want to do a JSA crossover. Well, it's funny you should mention that because the next thing in mind is is <laughs> Wizard putting other heroes to Morrison and saying, hey, are they going to turn up and join the League? And the first one is the Atom. And obviously, as we know, Atom kind of is now with the League, but on a sort of part-time basis. And that's, um, I, as I say, no mention of the Mark Miller issue in this. So I don't think even Morrison had that in mind at this point. But the second one is Captain Marvel. And uh, Morrison does say, yeah, we're, we're going to do the JLA-JSA crossover in issues 27 to 29 of JLA. So it was going to be three parts, and it was going to start in issue 27, and neither of those things were true in the end. Kind of close, because it ran from 28 to 31. Yeah, four parts in the end and an issue later. Oh, but interestingly, if they're saying it was going to run starting like issue 27, that's the Mark Miller one. Yep. And we were speculating if that was like a kind of fill-in you know, did something not go wrong as such, but did something get like shuffled around? Yep. I think it must have been that they were going to fall behind and they needed to quickly put this fill in issue in. And that's why it's a different writer and artist. I, you know, Miller must have spoken to Morrison before writing it. Um, but yeah, I think that's that's why that happened. Weird. They, they, yeah, it's so wild. I mean, they 
They also go on about Zauriel a bit and reiterate the thing we were saying, they were saying earlier. That, that just they really want Zauriel to be Hawkman and, you know, Miller and Morrison. And they talk about the Paradise, uh, is it Paradise Lost miniseries? Yeah. yeah. You know, and how they were going to spin the character off into that miniseries and how it would ultimately lead to an ongoing series. And they were basically hoping that if they just kept being a pain about it, DC would eventually relent and Zarya would just become Hawkman. Well, Hawkman is one of the heroes mentioned in this feature as well. And they, they do talk about that, that Zariel was a new take on Hawkman. And Morrison even wanted to have a fight between Zariel and Katar Hall. But oh, DC wow. like, nope, can't use him. No Hawkman, not allowed. Weird. The um, Plastic Man, I, I guess a little shout out, because at this point they haven't joined. But uh, Morrison basically says, really, really, really excited to add Plastic Man because every team needs a kind of like a Joker. And basically says that Plastic Man is essentially just Ace Ventura. <laughs> because reminding sense. everyone, this was the 90s and that was a cultural reference at the time. <laughs> oh, oh, PJ, and the final thing I'll say is you mentioned Steel and Morrison talking about how surprised they are that Steel be kind of became a de facto leader and became mm. so popular. But in this, like who are the new members? Morrison says, I have a secret 12th member coming. And you'll never guess who it is, and I'm not going to tell you, but they're going to do big things with the JLA's technology, and they have a strong connection to a current leaguer. That could be Oracle, though. <laughs> oh, God, yeah, it could be Oracle. Yeah, <laughs> Oracle or Steel. Yeah, I'm, I'm choosing to believe it's Steel, but yeah. yeah, no, God, you're right. It could be Oracle. Yeah. The other ones mentioned in mine are Dr. Fatal, Satana, and Morrison's basically like, no, nah, I like them both, but no. Green Arrow, because at this point we knew Kevin Smith was bringing back Oliver Queen. And Morrison says something interesting here about not bringing Oliver Queen in, which is, I don't really want to do a Justice League that starts to fill up with characters that mean nothing to anyone under 30. It kind of starts to feel like my dad's Justice League. So, yeah, which is what DC would eventually just lean in and do by with Green Lantern Rebirth, Flash Rebirth, and bring back all the older versions of the characters for all the old men reading the books it's interesting it is interesting actually because of course wade and morrison by their own admission are very big on history and very big on referencing the past that does seem to be a very different approach to let's just bring back everybody who died and pretend that nothing ever changed perhaps yeah. it did yeah. feel like a step back to me when they they you know it clearly pissed a lot of people off when they were like bringing in these younger versions, but at least it was a decision. Yep. You know, kind of just rolling it back just feels a bit reductive. Yep. Yep. Um, then the other here is mentioned here at Our Man, and Morrison says, yeah, he's coming. He won't be around for a huge chunk of time, but he's going to be around. Animal Man, and Morrison says, I really want to do Animal Man again. He'll be in my last story arc. I don't know what he'll do, but he's going to be there. <laughs> uh, yeah, as he, he, mentions, and- he mentions Animal Man briefly in mine. If only to say... Uh, Morrison isn't a fan of what Vertigo did with the character after they left the book. Oh, okay. And wanted to get Animal Man back to their um, superhero origins, basically. Uh, Aztec is the next one they ask about here, and Morrison says, yes, I'll be bringing Aztec back. Black Canary, and this is interesting, Morrison says, um, in my mind she was offered a place on the team, but she declined because it reminded her too much of Oliver Queen and Better Days, and it seemed more dignified for her to stay out. 
That's quite a nice way of putting it. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Uh, they ask about Nightwing. And he goes, well, I've already got Batman, Huntress and Oracle. And I don't want to make it a Batman book, so no. <laughs> um, Supergirl. And he says, she doesn't belong in the League, but I almost brought her in when Superman was electric just to have the costume there. Yes, of course. And you mentioned that, didn't you? Yeah. I, I didn't know that until you brought yeah. it up. And then the final ones, they ask about a Firestorm and Red Tornado. And it turns out Morrison just really doesn't like either of those characters. <laughs> Oh, interesting, interesting. And yet they did they have had a couple of Firestorm cameos which have been quite Yeah, yeah. Not Fi- terrible, I would say. Firestorm was in one million, wasn't he? And in the main one million book, I think. Yes, and will pop up uh for a little very briefly, I would say, in World War Three. Yeah. Which for the longest time was my only introduction to, to the character. Like I didn't all I knew about Firestorm was what I'd seen in the pages of JLA. Yep. Until I expanded my horizons. <laughs> Do you have a section, PJ, all about the biggest threats the JLA have ever faced? Sort of. What I've got after that is the upcoming villains. And this is four pages of spoilers. It oh, tells wow. you exactly which villains are coming up. So it's like the Shaggy Man and General Eiling and the Ultramarines. And then it goes into the villains for Crisis Times 5. And then exactly who's showing up in Morrison's last arc as well. It's like, whoa. Oh, wow. Yeah, it not really holding away back. a lot. So I'm not going to go into any of it. Um, it does then have a list of 10 villains Wizard want to see fighting the JLA, but it's fairly obvious and typical you know brainiac ultra humanite rachel ghoul the anti-monitor gorilla grod brimstone solaris the avengers mongol and despero i'm guessing just because of the nature of Mor- you know morrison's creative control and where they were taking it I'm, I'm guessing there isn't anything like oh i really wanted to bring in this character but i couldn't get hold of him or i wanted to do this or i couldn't do that no not really it's i think morrison put in the exact villains that they wanted to from my reading of it and yeah the wizard the 10 villains we'd like to see just you know they weren't going to happen under morrison so yeah the interesting thing for me because i've got the big the big threat section as well and the biggest takeaways for me were that one morrison originally wanted the hyper clan to be kryptonians oh but dc editorial wouldn't let them so they went with White Martians instead. Okay. And they go on to say that, like, by turning the Martians into humans at the end of the storyline, they left the door open for future creators to do anything with them. Although Morrison says, I would have no interest in doing a story with, like, 70 White Martians running around. Which is exactly what Wade ultimately does Yeah. in a later <laughs> story. Uh, they talk about the Injustice Gang. Yeah. And how Morrison really wants to reboot them. References the the Superman Revenge Squad, which, of course, uh, Christopher Monica Murphy, uh, our amazing listener, uh, referenced, which was a callback to something. But apparently the roster of the Injustice Gang was entirely dependent on what editorial would let, who editorial would let them include. Oh, okay. And in this little feature, they talk about how, well, it's definitely Lex Luthor Definitely um, Joker. But then it's like, maybe we'll have Savitar to fight oh, Flash. Yeah. You know, uh, and it's like, he's saying, like, who on earth could be Jong's enemy? Maybe it'll be Despero. 
you know, it, it was really up in the air as to who they could just even have, you know, what was going on in the individual series. Um, and the final interesting thing was that Morrison's talking about their plans for the crime syndicate and Earth 2 hmm. and how they're going to do an evil version of Aquaman called Barracuda. <laughs> that would have been fun. Yeah, which of course just, again, never happened. No. So there you go. Yeah, and that, honestly, there's only one last thing in my my magazine now, and it's where Wizard have written up what the rules for being on monitor duty on the JLA are, and it's just stupid. It's them trying to be funny, and it doesn't quite work. So, <laughs> um, Well, yeah, I, I've kind of reached the end as well, and the, the last thing I have to comment on is the, um, the day in the life of editor Ruben Diaz, uh, which we've mentioned a little bit. Uh, it seems like quite a long day, I'll be honest <laughs> with you. Um, an era where things were kind of like mile a minute. And um, it starts off by saying that FedEx lost some pages of artwork from a scanning story by Chip Wallace. Do you know, I've heard about FedEx losing so many comic pages in the 90s. <laughs> yeah, God, it's terrifying, isn't it? You know, before the days of decent email transfer. Mm. Um, they again mention Joey Cavillari stopping by to say that Superman can't push the moon back into orbit, so they need an alternative. And the other thing is that Ruben Diaz, at least three times throughout the day, tries to call Grant Morrison in Glasgow to beg for the next script because Morrison is behind and can't get hold of them at all, <laughs> uh, asking, do they ever answer the phone? But then Mark Wade calls and says he's been having some interesting conversations with Morrison about year one. To which Ruben Diaz says, well, I'm glad somebody can reach them. <laughs> oh, well, maybe that's it. Maybe Morrison was just on the phone to Wade at all these points and it was engaged. I'll be honest with you, I can totally imagine that, like, just, you know, your editor's on the phone begging for a script. I mean, that's kind of the phone call you don't answer, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure I read, I can't remember if this was in Wizard or another magazine, but can't remember who it was but a marvel artist before email just wasn't submitting the pages and they kept making excuses on it and going oh no yeah they'll they'll be with you so, oh no i haven't sorry they're, they're this far done honest and the editor ended up um even though they were like other sides of the country the editor went to their house <laughs> knocked on the door <laughs> and was like so where are these pages oh no <laughs> i think it might have been jay lee when he was doing the inhumans Oh, wow. Yeah, God. Yeah. Very detailed artwork as well, so I can imagine that would take a while. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so I, I don't know if, like, the highlight of the day is, you know, um, repeatedly having to look at reference images from the Steel movie, uh, or it's when Grant's faxed script arrives at 6.20pm, basically, hmm. and he's just standing by the fax machine waiting for the issues to come in. Oh, that would be quite late in Scotland as well, wouldn't it? I don't know where yeah. in America DC were at the time, but yeah. But also, like, at this point in, like, uh, Grant Morrison's creative career, I can imagine them not really sleeping. Yeah. And just working at, like, 4 a.m. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, there we go. That is that is basically the entire the entire um, special. Yeah. Uh, that was really interesting, in actually. I think I'm glad in the end that we ended up with different magazines because I think looking at the different where both Morrison and the JLA were at the two different time points and comparing them was actually really interesting. Yeah, it's it's kind of wild. And 
I, I, I think a kind of takeaway from both of them is that like while Morrison, I got the impression that while Morrison has like a kind of clearly just this deep, 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 deep affinity for the characters, they are quite a restless creator yeah. and are unlikely to stick around or and outstay their welcome. So I kind of got the vibe, particularly in you know the 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 interviews you were referencing, that they were already, you know, kind of tidying things up and looking oh. forward to moving on. Yeah, they very much had their end goal in mind by the time my special rolled around. Yeah, it must be kind of weird, you know, particularly to have gone in with with such kind of like you know basically kicking the door into DC editorial and saying like I want to write one of your flagship titles. And they'll yeah. be going like, oh my God, it's Grant Morrison. Yes, of course, please. Yeah. Uh, and then just be like, yeah, I'm done. I think, <laughs> I, you know, I'm moving on to something else. Yep. <laughs> and it was then on to New X-Men, was it not? Uh, I believe so. Pretty much as soon as they finished JLA, I think they went to Marvel and yeah, New X-Men. Yeah. Which I feel like they were on for longer than they were for JLA. I want to say it was 40 odd issues for New X-Men or something like that. I know the ending got a bit rushed, but yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Because really, I mean, what we're talking, if you count all the weird tyings as well to JLA, we're talking January 97 to May 2000. Yeah. And they obviously would have finished, unless it was like being faxed at like the last minute, they probably would have finished the scripts a degree ahead of the artwork. Yeah. So who knows? It could have It could have been less than three. Wait, my maths is terrible. 98, 99. It's like, we're talking like two and a half years, maybe, yep. if that. Yeah. Kind of flew by. It really did. And so is our podcast. We are getting towards the end of the JLA Morrison run now, and that is scary. Well, indeed. I mean, I'm certainly, I didn't really think we'd be talking for two hours about about these specials either. So, you know, clearly we're, we're looking for content wherever we can find it. And we got all that content. So much content. I will say, and this is literally the last thing I will bring up, is there's quite a nice quote from Morrison in their interview mm. where they, they get asked, you know, what are your what are your kind of like big dreams or ambitions for the series? To which Morrison says, all in all, I'd like it to be seen as a classic era for the Justice League, but that's just my big head talking. Oh, no, I, I think in that grant, you were successful. Hey, and... How could a young, a youngish Grant Morrison have known, a pushing forty Grant Morrison have known that two guys will be doing a podcast about it in twenty-three years' time, or yep. however long it's been? <laughs> oh. PJ, have we absolutely exhausted everything that can be said about these two specials? Yeah, I think so. It was nice to look back. I think they're an interesting time capsule and like comment on the series. And yeah, that was fun. It was fun. And I if anybody listening knows anything about the wizard contest to appear in the series. Oh, please hero, tell us. <laughs> yeah, if that was retro, I would love to know because that just adds a, an additional light to the whole thing. Yeah. And I need to look up, was it the Legends of the Super Legend of the Superheroes? Legends of the Legends of the Superheroes, yeah. Well, that's my homework. <laughs> um, well, on that note, I suppose, because we've been talking for a very long time, I should say a big thank you to Gav Mitchell for drawing our amazing cover artwork. And to Elliot Red for composing and performing our theme tune, Justice. Um, PJ, this has been an absolute pleasure. Uh, the last the last 50 episodes have been an absolute pleasure. And I, I, hope, um, I hope we'll still be doing this when we hit episode 100. We will be. I'm determined. 
Would you would you like to? You've had fifty episodes to perfect it, PJ. Would you like to um, see us home? Oh, do you know, I would, but I've just received an email. They're bringing Wizard Magazine back, and they want to do a JLA cast special. So uh, let's get on it. <laughs> Which will feature Grant Morrison as a special guest talking about the impact of our podcast. Yes. 